All right, we're starting a, a new series today, our first one for the year after our vision series. And last year for Easter, we did a Words from the Cross reflection on Good Friday because we were all in COVID. Remember that thing? <laughs> and today we're in level two. Um, and last year, because we couldn't meet at all and, and gather in, in person, we did this really awesome Good Friday service, which a lot of traditional churches do on Good Friday. They have a service and they get these reflections from the last seven words of Jesus from the cross. And it's like a meditation sort of reflection thing. And there were people in this church community that did that. And it was just amazing, wasn't it? Like, it was just so beautiful. It was, it, was, it was one of the highlights of that time for me. Um, it, was some, it was an interesting time overall, but it was some you know, really awesome things and some things that were really hard. But that was just one of the things I just really loved was hearing you guys reflect on these beautiful words of Jesus from the cross. Well, I'm not going to do all seven words. I'm, I'm going to do four. And the four that I'm going to do are Luke 23:34 on the theme of forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Luke 23:43, salvation. Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. John 19.30, triumph, it is finished. And I'll finish off with Luke 23, uh, verse 46, trust. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so today I'm going to be doing um, forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And if you want to turn in your Bibles to the passage that this is in, it's in Luke 23, verse 33 to 36. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. I remember um, at one of my previous jobs, I wasn't working in a church, just to give some context for this, and I had a, a workmate at work who wasn't a Christian, and he said to me one time, it must have been around March or April, he said to me, isn't it that time of the year where you do that celebrating? And I was like, hmm, what are you talking about? And he knew I was a Christian. And he goes, you know, about that, you know that guy you worship that's on the cross? And he was, he was totally mocking me. He wasn't a Christian at all. And I, I, I must have said something really Christian like, oh, shut up. <laughs> but... Uh, the thing that really struck me about it was just how, um, as a society, not even not, not just Christians, like we, we have crosses, we have them adorned on church buildings, we even put them on buns that are already in the supermarkets ready for Easter, that our whole society, is, 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 and in Christians, are over-familiar with the cross, and we forget how awful and brutal the cross was because we're so far away from it. There's 2,000 years between us and when this sort of went on. And so it can just seem like a symbol. It can just seem sort of a matter-of-fact thing. And even for some people out in society, it's something trivial or something to laugh at. But it was something horrific. I still vividly remember going to watch this film. 
the passion of the Christ. Mel Gibson's uh, controversial but pretty intense film. I was in my early 20s at the time. I was actually at a YWAM base in Madrid in Spain. And um, because all the cinemas in, in where we were living did all their, they dubbed it all into Spanish, everything that was in English, or well, even though that film was in Aramaic, wasn't it? Um, we decided to go to a, a cinema right in the middle of town where they would have English subtitles so that we could watch this film. And I, like I said, I was in my early 20s, and I went in there quite naive. I, I kind of just went in with that kind of entertainment thing that you do when you go to the movies. I think I had the big popcorn, the giant Coke, probably a bag of lollies, like a whole like, kind of thing going in and sitting down. And, uh, you know, the credits roll and you watch trailers and all this sort of thing. I was with a group of people having a great time. And I'm sort of munching away on my popcorn and I'm drinking this thing. And then, you know, the movie starts and then it starts going through this process that Jesus went through. And it is horrific if you've watched it. It probably doesn't even, it probably only scratches the surface of what it was really like because you don't have the smells, you don't have that sort of visceral thing of being there. But it is an intense and an emotional experience. And I remember there was just a point in the movie where I must have just been like, put the popcorn to the side, put the drink down. I just felt so overwhelmed by what Jesus went through and I just remember just weeping. And it was one of those things when we left the cinema, it was like it'd been at a funeral. It was just somber. We got back on this um, metro train, and no one talked, really. If they did, they just said a few thoughts. It was, it was just incredible as Christians to, to reflect on what Jesus has gone through for us. And we're coming up to Easter. It's not that far away. And as we look to Easter and Good Friday, we, we don't want to take this trivially. We want to remember the cross. We want to remember those incredible words of Jesus that speak so powerfully from this incredible moment in human history. Like I said earlier, we just have no idea what it was really like if you hadn't been there in the first century to experience something like a crucifixion. This is from Fleming Rutledge, um, who wrote a very helpful um, book on the words from the cross. She said, everybody had seen crucified men along the roadsides of the Roman Empire. Everyone knew what it looked like, smelled like, sounded like. The horrific sight of completely naked men in agony, the smell and sight of their bodily functions taking place in full view of all. The sounds of their groans and the laboured breathing that went on for hours. And in some cases for days, Perhaps worst of all is the fact that no one cared. That picture there is um, from the sort of a Spartacus, I think, TV show or movie, and it's a scene that's from an actual historical event where Spartacus and his rebellion, they were, um, 6,000 of them were actually all crucified along this road to Rome as a, um, a statement from the Roman Empire to anyone else, don't you dare revolt. Don't you dare rebel against our power as slaves or anyone because we will do this to you. This I mean, how horrific would that be, just walking past that and seeing that sight? And that is the sort of sight that the people who watched Jesus would have seen. How does Jesus respond to this horrific treatment? He has been... Um, abandoned by his disciples, um, betrayed by Judas. The Pharisees and the Romans have 
um, colluded together to crucify him. He's been brought out to Calvary. He's been nailed to a tree. He's hanging there. He's been taunted. He's been whipped. He's been mocked. The soldiers are, are playing. They're gambling for his clothes. Um, there's people sort of taunting him, saying, oh, if you're the son of God, get down from there. And when I was writing the sermon, I actually thought, how incredible is Jesus' restraint in this moment? You know, he says that point to um, Peter when he's going to be arrested, and Peter says, no, don't do this, and he cuts off the ear of the soldier, and he says, don't you know that I can, I can call on my father and legions and legions of angels can come? So while he's on the cross, he has that power, and he, and he holds it back. He restrains himself, not because he's a, a stoic person, someone who can endure incredible amounts of pain for the sake of it, by sort of having a stiff upper lip in the moment. No, he does it because of love. And he responds to those people who are doing that to him by praying a prayer of forgiveness and intercession over them. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Notice how Jesus begins his prayer. He begins by saying, Father. You know, we don't serve some sort of impersonal force like that you might think of in Star Wars or the way people talk about the universe. Oh, the universe has been good to me today. Or, or the universe is trying to tell you something today. Or, you know, how people talk about Mother Nature. Oh, Mother Nature's angry today. Or, oh, she's, oh you know, it's great today. It, this sort of impersonal force that's out there that people in the world think about but doesn't actually really care about their day-to-day -day lives or who they are. No, we don't serve that kind of God. We serve a God who is a person, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And in this moment, when Jesus is on the cross, he is accessing that relationship. In his agony, in his pain, in his utter torment, he is reaching out to the Father. He's accessing the heart of the Father for this moment. And who is this Father? Who is this Father God? He's not the angry God that many imagine. No, he's the God, he's the Father that the Apostle John tells us in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is the father heart of God that Jesus is accessing. This is the same father that's in the prodigal son. That as the prodigal son, the lost son, comes running or walking back up into town, that the father God runs after him, embraces him, and, and says, let's have a party, you're back, you're restored to the, the family. That is the Father's heart that Jesus in this moment is accessing. Isn't it beautiful? And it's a horrific and horrible and terrible thing, but at the same time, it's beautiful. This is God on a cross, the most horrific and unimaginable thing, and it's almost absurd for us as humans, but it's a, at the same time, it is beautiful. The way Jesus is accessing the Father's heart and praying this incredible prayer. 
forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing or do. In the Greek, it has an idea that this is actually a continuous thing. So that Jesus probably didn't just say this once. He might have said it it many, many times. And if if I think about it and the way he would have been doing it, you know, as they're crucifying and lifting up on cross, Father, forgive them. Forgive these soldiers. They do not know what they're doing. As the fickle, angry mob are yelling out things to him, the same people, most likely, who were also rejoicing when he came into Jerusalem, and now, because that's what mobs are like, they're fickle, they're now taunting him, they're the ones who are yelling out, crucify him, they've come for the spectacle, he's saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. For the Pharisees, the religious, self-righteous experts who condemned the Son of God to death, he's saying, Father, forgive them. These, these plonkers, they don't know what they're doing. Have grace for them, Lord, because they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. As many as you know, forgiveness is not an easy thing to do. Some people say that um, to forgive is, is quite a soft thing, but I, I disagree. I think it's a very strong thing to do. It's one of the hardest things, I think, as humans, as broken, sinful humans, it's one of the hardest things that we can do in our life. You know, you know, people hurt us and do things to us, and sometimes they haven't said sorry, or they haven't even acknowledged that they've done something wrong to us, but for us to forgive that person requires an incredible act of grace and mercy You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about grace is not cheap. And what he meant by that is that it's costly. It costs God his son for for this forgiveness, for this grace, for this mercy to be extended into our life. It's not something that we want to take lightly as believers But it also gives us this incredible sense of hope, doesn't it? If Jesus on the cross can forgive those soldiers that did that to him while they're doing it to him, to those Pharisees that condemned him, to the fickle mob, even to his um, disciples who screamed and ran and to you know, people who betrayed him, if Jesus can you know, say that from the cross, I forgive you, there is nothing that God can't forgive for us. There's nothing we've done, nothing we've thought, nothing that we've experienced or done in our lives that God the Father can't reach out and forgive us and love us. This is incredible good news. This is wonderful good news, isn't it? That, that God in this moment shows this sort of love. This is the sort of God we serve, guys. Like This is the God who did this for us, went on the cross for us, that there's nothing beyond His grasp, nothing... No one's beyond his love and his forgiveness, that he wants to forgive us. He wants to uh, wash our sin clean. I love this quote. It says, God is great in Sinai. The thunder precedes him. The lightnings attend him. The earth trembles. The mountains fall in fragments. But there is a greater God than this. On Calvary, nailed to the cross, wounded, thirsting, 
dying, he cries, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Great is the religion of power, but greater is the religion of love. Great is the religion of implacable justice, but greater is the religion of pardoning mercy. Isn't that beautiful? What Jesus is also demonstrating here on the cross is that he actually practices what he preaches. In the Sermon on the Mount, which is, um, you know, we've, we did a little bit on that last year, which is a, a, like a, a bringing together of all Jesus' brilliant teaching on how to do life and how to do life well. He says in Matthew 5, verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is living this out in this very moment. He is loving the people who are his enemies, who hate him, who want to kill him, want to murder him. And he is praying, he's interceding with the Father for those very people in that moment. He is living out his words. He's not just some great teacher, he is the Son of God, and he lives it out in this moment. And that incredible, um, that incredible love of enemies he imparted to his disciples, and they imparted to the early church. I think I've said this before, but, you know, like the most famous Bible verse in the sort of the Western world is John 3.16, and it's, a, it's not, um, we're not having Bible verse wars here um, between other generations, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But their favorite Bible verse, their John 3.16 was Matthew 5.44. They lived it because they had to. For the first 300 years of the Roman Empire, it was hard work being a Christian. You were under intense persecution because you didn't serve Caesar as Lord, you served Jesus as Lord. And that meant that you could be persecuted, you could be killed, you could be thrown into to the lions at the Colosseum. And so these Christians lived out these words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount and his example on the cross, and their example by doing that in transformed the Roman Empire within 300 years. An empire that had been going for a while, 300 years, not through an army, not through a general, not even through some charismatic leader, no, through simple, ordinary Christians taking the words of Jesus from the Sermon on Mount and living them out. That example transformed the Roman Empire. That example turned it upside down to the point it converted to Christianity, and there was a whole lot of problems down from there on, but it was an amazing thing for that first 300 years to see what people using the words of Jesus in this moment would mean. I think some of us struggle with this, that God can love and forgive us. I, I, I said that. Um, but I think most of us are like, yeah, that's great news. I love that. God loves me. He wants to forgive me. Come on, if we're honest, it's hard forgiving others, eh? Like, you're like, oh, man, please, Lord, not that person. Anyone else, but not that person, Lord, you know? And you're probably sitting there going like, yeah, Nick, yep, cool, get it. Love the, you know, the love of the Lord, forgiveness, oh, I'm all over that. But, yeah, don't ask me to forgive that person who's done that terrible thing to me. And I don't want to trivialize this because I know that some of you have probably experienced um, really hard things in your life as well. 
where people have seriously hurt you, um, damaged your, your life in different ways, and like I said earlier, they may never have said sorry, they may never try to make amends. Um, but this is where the rubber hits the road as Christians. Uh, this is the hard part of, of, of Christianity. It's like we receive the Father's love and forgiveness, but we have to reach out to others and give them love and forgiveness, no matter what they've done, no matter who they are. It says, um, I don't know who actually said this quote, but I've heard it from a few people. It says, unforgiveness is like drinking poison yourself and waiting for the other person to die. And what that means is that if you have so much unforgiveness and bitterness in your heart, you're actually displacing the place in your heart where the joy of the Holy Spirit's meant to be. And so it means that you, you're not actually living into the flourishing and the goodness of God that he has for you, that the Holy Spirit wants to, to have in your heart to give you this great life. If you're holding on to bitterness and forgiveness, and hey, probably sometimes it's justified in a human sense, you actually hurt yourself more in the process if you keep holding on to that. So there's an invitation to, as, 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 as Jesus showed on the cross, as we have received, as the early Christians have shown, is to extend that love and forgiveness to others, whoever they may be. I just want to finish today on the story, and I'll, I'll try not to cry. Um, when I was preparing this series, I, uh, I, I don't know, something about the cross and about Jesus, and just how awesome this, it, 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 like it just broke into me, when it, this week when I was preparing this, I, I just had a couple of times, and Amy was sitting aside me in our office at the back of the garage, and she just saw me like, and she's like, oh yeah. <laughs> but I just had like, these moments where I was just, just undone, just thinking about the goodness of God, thinking about his amazing sacrifice, thinking about what he has done for us, and I, I, I find this story so powerful, so I'll try not to um, cry, I'll try and hold it all together. Oh, okay, yeah, thanks, Vic. <laughs> Simon uh, Wiesenthal is an Austrian Jew, uh, is an Austrian Jew um, and he was imprisoned in a Nazi concentration camp during World War II. He was part of, a, as being part of that camp, he had to go on a work detail so they would leave the concentration camp and go do sort of labouring work or in factories. So he was taken to do clean-up work in a makeshift field hospital near the Eastern Front in Russia. As, they, uh, as, as his group marched from the prison camp to the hospital, they came across a cemetery for German soldiers. On each grave is a sunflower, and hence the name of the book that he wrote, The Sunflower. This is what Wiesenthal said um, in the book about um, what he thought when he saw these sunflowers on these graves of these German soldiers. He said, I envied the dead soldiers. Each had a sunflower to connect them to the living world and butterflies to visit their grave. For me, there would be no sunflower. I would be burned in a mass grave where corpses would be piled on top of me. No sunflower would ever bring light into my darkness and no butterflies would dance above my dreadful tomb. While he was working at the field hospital, a nurse um, orders him to follow her into a room where there is a SS soldier, a, a Nazi SS soldier lying, dying on a bed. This, this SS soldier 
is 22-year-old German Carl Sedell. Carl had asked the nurse to bring him a Jew. He wants to make a dying confession. He wants to make it to a Jew. The SS man is wrapped in bandages, covering his entire face with only holes for his mouth, nose and ears. For the next several hours, Simon sits alone in silence with Carl as the dying SS soldier tells him his story. Carl was an only child from a Christian home. His parents had raised him in the church and had not supported Hitler. But at 15, against his parents' wishes, he joined the Hitler Youth. And at 18, he joined the infamous SS troops. Now, in this moment, Carl wants to confess the atrocities he has participated in. Most horrifically, he tells of being part of a group of SS soldiers who drove with whips 300 Jews into a house where they had placed gasoline canisters in the attic. After setting the house on fire, Carl saw a mother and father with the father holding their six-year-old son in his arm to escape the flame. This family jumped from the window. Carl shot them all. Now, Carl has been mortal wounded in battle and wants to make his final confession. During the several hours that Simon the Jew sat with Carl the Nazi, Simon never spoke. At Carl's request, Simon held the dying man's hand. Simon brushed away the flies and gave Carl a drink of water, but he never spoke. During the long ordeal, Simon never doubted Carl's sincerity or that he was truly sorry for his crimes. At last, Carl said, with his final words, I am left here with my guilt. In the last hours of my life, you are here with me. I don't know who you are. I only know that you are a Jew, and that is enough. I know that what I have told you is terrible. In the long nights while I've been waiting for death, time and time again, I've longed to talk about it to a Jew and beg forgiveness from him. Only I didn't know if there were any Jews left. I know that what I'm asking is almost too much for you, but without your answer, I cannot die in peace. With that, Simon Wiesenthal made up his mind and left the room in silence. That night, Carl Sedell died. Carl left his possessions to Simon, but Simon refused them. Against all odds, Simon Wiesenthal suffered, uh, survived the Holocaust. 89 members of his family did not, but he could not forget Carl Sedell. After the war, he went and visited Carl's mother to check out Carl's story. It was just as Carl had said. Carl's mother assured Simon that this, her son was a good boy and could never have done anything bad. Again, this time out of kindness, Simon remained silent. In the book, Simon Wiesenthal says of Carl Sedell, in his boyhood, Carl had certainly been a good boy but a graceless period of his life had turned him into a murderer. Wiesenthal concludes his story with this question. So he writes this question in this book. Um, he proposes it to um, anyone who's sort of reading the book, and he invites people to make submissions to try and answer this in incredible question. And the question was, ought I to have forgiven him? Was my silence at the bedside of the dying Nazi right or wrong? This is a profound moral question that challenges the conscience of the reader of this episode just as much as it once challenged my heart and mind. The crux of the matter is, of course, the question of forgiveness. Forgetting is something that time alone takes care of, but forgiveness is an act of volition. 
and only the sufferer is qualified to make the decision. You who have just read the sad and tragic episode in my life can mentally change places with me and ask yourself the crucial question, what would I have done? Basically, the second part of the book has these 53 prominent thinkers who um, write in. So there's Jews, there's Christians, there's atheists, Buddhists, and they respond to his question. Um, basically, out of the respondents, uh, 28 of the respondents said, no, offering forgiveness in this situation is not possible. 16 of the respondents said, yes. Out of, those, um, out of those 16 that said yes, nine said they were un- uncertain. But out of the 16 that said yes, they were Christians and, and oh, 13 were Christian and three were Buddhists. Simon Wiesenthal obviously beyond, um, went on to live a noble and humanitarian life. He died in 2005 at the age of 96. Um, I've read this in a, um, an article written by a pastor who actually writes his own response as a Christian to this narrative. And I'm going to finish with that and then ask Meg to come up with a team. So this is Brian Zahn. He's a, he's a pastor and he responds to Mr. Wiesenthal um, the best way he can as a Christian. He says, Dear Mr. Wiesenthal, first of all, let me say I will not presume to sit in judgment on your actions. You showed kindness to a dying Nazi as you held his hand. You brushed away the flies and you gave him a drink of water. You showed great kindness to his mother in not destroying the memory of his son. Also, I agree with the Lutheran theologian, Marty Martin, who says non-Jews, and perhaps especially Christians, should not give advice about the Holocaust experience for the next 2,000 years, and then we shall have nothing to say. Cheap, instant advice from a Christian would trivialize the lives and deaths of millions. Nevertheless, since you have asked the question, let me try to reply. I cannot say what I would have done only what I hope I could hope I would have done. As a Christian, I would hope that I would reply in something of this manner to my dying enemy. I cannot offer you forgiveness. So this is um, Ryan sort of writing to his, um, to Carl. I cannot offer you for forgiveness on behalf of those who have suffered monstrous crimes at your hands and the hands of those whom you willingly aligned yourself. I have no right to speak on your behalf behalf, but what I can tell you is that forgiveness is possible. There is a way for you to be reconciled with God, whose image you have defiled, and there is a way for you to be restored to the human race from which you have fallen. There is a way because the one who never committed a crime cried from the cross, saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Because I believe in the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I believe there is a way for justice and reconciliation to coexist, a way for justice to be satisfied and reconciliation to be offered. Mm -hmm. The forgiveness of which I speak of is not a cheap forgiveness. It is not cheap because it was not cheap for Jesus Christ to suffer the violence of the cross and offer no retaliation, but love and forgiveness. It is not cheap forgiveness because it requires of you deep repentance, including a commitment to restore to justice for those you have wronged. There is no cheap forgiveness for your sins, but there is a there is a costly forgiveness. In you, in truth, turn from your sin and sorrow and look to Christ in faith. There is forgiveness. 
a costly forgiveness that can reconcile you to God and restore you to the human race. I cannot forgive you on behalf of others, but on my own behalf, and in the name of Jesus Christ, I tell you, your sins are forgiven. Welcome to the forgiven community of forgiven sinners. May you die in peace. This is what I hope I would have said, um, Brian's arm. I, I, I just love that beautiful line at the end. Welcome to the forgiving community of forgiven sinners. Why don't we stand?